Chapter twenty six of the Hawk of Egypt by Joan Conquest. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter twenty six. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel, and there shall be none to bury her. Second Kings. The station was bathed blood red in the afterglow of the wonderful sunset, which, being a daily occurrence, is hardly ever noticed by the winter visitors in Cairo. A star or two twinkled in the pale grey hem of the coat of many colours which day was offering to night as the evening breeze lifted the edges of the veils and blew refreshingly around a woman who descended awkwardly from a native cart and limped her way across the station-yard. The porter, trundling Ben Kellum's luggage, caught her by the shoulder, and, likening her to the cross-eyed offspring of a clumsy she-camel, flung her to one side. Rage incarnate glittered from her eyes, bitter vituperation flowed from behind the yashmak, until, noticing that a swashbuckling member of the native police was making his menacing way towards her, she quieted down and limped to where she saw, standing, the station-porter of Shepherd's Hotel. Strange is that power which has led so many a criminal to the gallows by dragging him irresistibly back to the scene of the crime. It was some such force which had held Zulana throughout the day. She had nothing further to gain by looking upon the man who had unconsciously been the cause of her ruin. She had done her best to retaliate by blighting the love she had herself tried to gain— but she had been mastered by a morbid desire to look just once more upon Ben Kelham, hoping to be able to trace in his face some sign of his mental hurt. The suffering of innocent people and animals had always given her intense pleasure. How much greater, therefore, her satisfaction, if she could bring, and gloat over, bodily or mental pain to someone who had made her suffer! She hung about until she saw Ben Kelham arrive, and stood quite close to him, chuckling inwardly at the tale told by the grim set of his mouth. Zulana was dirty, her hands were ill-kempt, her fine muslin veils filthy and torn, but there still hung about her the faint odour of the perfume she had always used in the heyday of her success. The passing of a barrow piled high with luggage disturbed her veils, and as the rush of some excited natives disturbed the air, Ben Kellum swung around. He had suddenly scented the perfume of Zulana, the courtesan. He looked to the right, to the left, and all about him, eyed with disfavour the dirty woman so close to him, who stood crookedly, with an evil leer to one eye, frowned, and walked away to the platform from which the train starts for Luxor. All stations in the east are invariably and most uncomfortably crowded with natives, who either stray hopelessly after the manner of lost sheep, or stand stock-still, as hopelessly incapable of movement, or rush pell-mell hither-thither at the sound of clanging bell, or shriek from locomotive, but the station was unduly crowded this evening, owing to the return of hundreds of pilgrims from a visit to a certain shrine in the countryside, and an influx of their friends and relations from the bazaar to greet them. The strong electric lights were blazing, intensifying the vivid colours and modifying the dirt upon what was intended to be the white portions of the natives' picturesque raiment. They shone down also upon the disfigured woman who, with a certain amount of satisfaction in her heart, brought about by the grim look on Ben Kellum's face, was limping towards the exit. She had just reached it when her veil was caught on the rough wicker of a basket containing hens, which was being carried on the back of a man whose mean hovel, which yet had been his home, had been raised to the ground to allow the building of the courtesan's house. He had stood the best part of the day, with heart full of vengeance, among the little knots of people loitering outside the courtesan's gate, and had only been induced to leave the spot, to go and claim the poultry waiting for him at the station. Just as the veil caught in the wicker, he moved a little to one side to escape a group of laughing, joyous pilgrims, 
swung right round to shout them a greeting, and in so doing pulled the struggling woman in front of him, tearing off her veil and exposing the right side of her face, which, having escaped injury, was still wonderfully beautiful, in spite of the dirt. The basket of hens crashed to the ground, and bursting, liberated the birds, as with a yell of, Zulana! The man leapt straight at the woman, who dived under a porter's arm and disappeared through the exit. There was a sudden mad rush to the exit by the inhabitants of the bazaar, who, jamming together in a shouting, yelling pack, gave the woman a few moments' grace. "'Stand on one side, sir. Come back, miss,' ordered the station-master, seizing the arm of an indignant Britisher. "'It's no use trying to stop them. They go like this sometimes, quite mad, generally when they've sighted a thief or somebody against whom they have a grudge. Let them pass, sir, let them pass.' The station-yard was packed with vehicles, motors, omnibuses, and scores of rattling, ricketing native carts. Straight into the middle of them fled the woman, terror lending her an incredible speed, which agonizing physical pain augmented. She dived under horses, she squeezed through vehicles, she twisted and turned, caring not for the native drivers, who, indifferent to the daily sufferings of their wretched little horses, lashed at her with their whips, with shouts of, Shimalak! Ua'a! Ua'a! Riglak, riglak, ua, ua, and peals of derisive laughter. Heated by the man who had carried the hens, their eyes blazing, helpless victims of the indescribable bloodlust which sometimes seizes the mob, the inhabitants of the bazaar, with those who, understanding nothing of the cause of the tumult, had joined in merely for the sport, were after the woman like a pack of hounds. If it had not been for the limp caused by the shortening of one leg, and which became more noticeable the more she ran, she might have escaped in the crowd in the Place Ramses and been alive to-day. But the pack, as they ran, shouted, A lame dog, a lame dog! Who has seen a lame dog? And those who had rushed to door or window to watch the fun pointed her out with yells of laughter. She found a few moments' respite when she tripped and fell over the neck of a recumbent camel, indistinguishable in the gloom of the side-street into which she had turned, as she headed for her own house. She had no distinct plan in her head. She was too exhausted to think. She only knew, as no all-wounded animals, that home is the place to go when stricken unto death. If she had just sat quite still on the curb, pulled a bit of stuff across her face, and pointed way down the street, with peals of laughter, the mob would have swept past her, and she would have been safe, but she blindly ran for home. If she had stayed where she had fallen, behind the camel which lurched to its feet as the pack ran by, she would even then have been safe, but she lay, face down in the filth, only long enough to regain her breath, which sounded like a whistle as it shrilled through the twisted mouth. With breath regained she was up and away, with the secret door in the wall, which had been discovered in her absence as her goal, just as the human hounds, doubling on their tracks, tore into the street, to see the fluttering end of her dress disappear round a corner. She ran with a twisting, shuffling lope, horrible to see. She looked like some wounded animal, as bent double, she paused again for breath, just for one moment, with face to the wall. She ran on, she stumbled and regained her footing, she fell on her crippled knees, then on to her face in the dust where she remained, breathing like a far-spent horse, with blood-stained foam flecking the corners of her mouth. A great shivering shook her as she listened to the shouting, yelling mob, questioning this way and that for the lost quarry. She did not pray, poor Zulana, she knew nothing of a god of love or pity to pray to. She lay still, burying her fingers in the stand, clinging desperately to what remained of her life. They swept round the corner, those men and women, screaming vengeance on her who had lived in luxury, whilst they starved, who hung herself with jewels and neglected to pay the trifling debts of the bazaar, who lived in a house built on the side of their demolished homes. 
They rushed past and over her lying begrimed and foul, one with the dust of the ill-lighted street. They drove her face into the dust, they marked her beautiful body with the shape of their feet, but they did not kill her. She wanted to live. The pack pressed on to the bazaar, carrying with it the definite news of the return of the woman Zulana, and if you had looked close you would have seen the cunning in the eyes of the man who had carried the hens. If you had listened to his whispered words you would have shivered at the ferocity of his counsel. In the passing of ten minutes you would, if you had walked that way, have walked through empty streets in the vicinity of the courtesan's house, and there would have been nothing or nobody to whisper to you of the men, women, and children, and dogs, standing packed in the rooms and passages and courtyards, waiting for a given signal. The moon looked down on a peaceful scene as Zulana, wrapped in filthy garments, crept stealthily from shadow to shadow. Had she been more observant, she would have wondered at the intense stillness of the bazaar, which, no matter at what hour of the night, is full of little sounds, the song of a woman, or her laugh, or her cry, the crack of a whip, the baying of dogs. If she had looked back, she would have seen the stealthy opening of the doors, the craning of furtive head as quickly withdrawn. She paid no heed. She was so near, so very near the place in the wall, hidden in the shadow of the talik palms, in which was the secret door, which opened on the pressing of a certain brick in the third row from the top. And once in the house, with a veil across her face, a whip or dagger in her hand, she would show them who was master, cripple or no cripple, fool that she had been to have submitted to the black Katim, but thrice fool he, who knew nothing of that other bank in which one half of her fortune and one half of her jewels were kept in safe custody against such a rainy day as this. She cursed herself for the blundering, feeble way she had set about revenge. She cursed the moon, the agony of her limbs, the stretch which lay between one shadow and another. But she laughed, no sound issuing from the gaping mouth, as she stood in the last patch of shadow which was separated by some few yards of silvery path from the black blot upon the wall which covered the secret door. They had hunted and harried her, and walked upon her body lying in the dust, but they had lost her and had gone back to their ovals to eat and sleep, and maybe once more she cast up the reckoning of the money she owed them, the which she swore the most horrible oath she would never pay. She gathered up her dust-ridden garments and stole swiftly across the moonlit space. She had just touched the edge of the shadow, she was almost home, when, with a mighty shout, they were upon her. Out of the houses, out of the courtyards, down the streets they swarmed, children and women falling, to be jerked to their feet by the men who ran silently, urged on by the fantastic who for years had hugged the idea of some such moment of most horrible revenge. And then, to the sinister sound of the rushing feet, there was added the baying of many pariah dogs, which, from every conceivable corner and from miles away, raced like a pack of wolves upon the steps, to join the hunt. Blind with terror, shaking in agony, Zulana fumbled helplessly for the special brick. It lay, she knew, in the third row, and had as a mark a jutting piece of mortar in the middle. She passed her hand wildly up and down, too mad with fear to count, every brick to right, to left, and as far as she could reach above, below— had the jutting piece of mortar. The wall was as high as the heavens. The third row was here, beneath her hand. No. High above her head. No. One, two. Yes. Here. Her fingers touched it. It was gone. It takes a long time to write or read in inky words, but it was really only a few seconds before the door swung open. She gave a terrible scream of relief and rushed into the blackness, and as she rushed, a dog leapt straight at her shoulders. She screamed again and swung to the door with all her strength. It shut upon the dog, breaking its back. It remained ajar to her pursuers. There was still hope. She knew the way. They did not. 
Could she but get to her bedroom behind the massive doors, could she but reach the telephone, the instrument she had regarded as her finest toy, she would soon have the police running to the rescue. She fled down the narrow passage which led to a jumble of small rooms. She even paused for a moment to listen to the cursing of those who ran behind her, stumbling in the narrow way. She fled through the farthest door. She was free, but there remained a shallow flight of marble stairs to the suite wherein her bedroom lay. Then she stopped, and, shrieking, flung out her arms. To right, to left, and upon the flight of stairs, there stood her servants. The men and the women she had flogged and kicked, thinking to heal their wounds and bruises and dim their memories by throwing gold amongst them on the morrow. They made no movement, they simply stood and stared. Her head veil and mantle had gone, her undergarments were torn to shreds, leaving exposed the slender body which leaned sideways like a tree which had been struck by lightning. Her matted hair fell far below her waist, it made a frame to the horrible face, one side of which was that of an old, old hag, and the other, grimed with dirt, flecked with foam, was yet as lovely as a jewel. They shrank back and still further back, they made the sign to scare away the spirit of evil, thinking her possessed of Eblis, the devil, they would not have touched her for a gold piece. They turned their heads at the sound of rushing footsteps, they motioned her to move on, believing her mad, they gave her a chance, for in the East you dare not turn your head against the mentally afflicted. She ran, and after her came the pack in full cry. Across great rooms, lit by hanging lamps, scented with braziers of perfumed wood, she fled, slipping upon chinchilla rug or glaring monstrous heart-rug of Berlin wool, in her desperate haste to quit the house. Out into the air she must get, under the trees in the garden, under the moon, down the broad paths to the wall at the end. There was no wall too high for her to climb in her extremity. Her face was grey, her eyes sunk in black orbits, her nose pinched, with nostrils which blew and flattened like bellows to her laboured breathing. A hand clutched at her streaming hair and missed it as she sped down the garden. They were upon her heels, dogs jumping at her face as she ran. She was blind, deaf, almost dead, when the great gorilla-shaped arms of Bess closed about her. She made no sound as she hurtled through the air. Mercifully, perhaps, she was dead, as she crashed down into the pit at the bottom of which great shapes prowled hungrily. They did not stay to watch, not one of them. Shouting and laughing, men and women ran back to the house, which in one hour they had stripped bare. Just before the dawn a great flame shot skywards, an orange ribbon across the purple robe of dying night. Requiem "'There was an awful row in the bazaar last night,' said Mr. Ephraim Perkins to his spouse, facing him across the breakfast-table. "'They killed a woman and burned her house down.' "'Really, dear,' said Mrs. Ephraim Perkins, rasping butter on a piece of toast. "'These natives want a firm hand over them. Poor thing! They usually stab each other in the East, don't they?' "'Yes, I think so, but they threw this one into a lion's den.' "'Now, that's an exaggeration, Ephraim.' The knife never stopped its rasping. They would not be allowed to keep wild beasts in a populated quarter. "'Stranger things have happened in the native quarter, Maria,' misquoted Mr. Perkins, than are dreamt of by the government official. True words. If we dare penetrate the labyrinths of the bazaar, and stir with foolish finger the dust which lies thick upon immemorial custom, what should we not find? But having a meed of wisdom in the full measure of our imperial insularity, we do not pry with foolish fingers. Guessing, even knowing of the wild beasts in the labyrinths, we draw a glove upon the hand, and walk delicately in the opposite direction, with half-closed eyes. "'I repeat, it is an exaggeration,' stubbornly replied Mrs. Ephraim Perkins, as she stretched for the marmalade, "'and I do hope the fire-engines arrived in time.'" End of chapter 26 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org